How to get kids back to school. That's turned out to be one of the major hurdles of the COVID pandemic, especially over the last several months. And while state and local leaders have been trying to figure out the answer, tens of thousands of kids have simply dropped off the rolls. Plus, it's Lunar New Year, when families gather to celebrate and when Vietnamese business districts really go all out. In Sacramento, one of these places is seeing some change as a younger generation is moving out. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera in Los Angeles. Elizabeth, did you watch any of the new impeachment trial that started? Nicole, I did listen to some of it and then watched a few of the videos that were shared of what was going on that day in the Capitol. Uh, the day of the insurgency, things we had not seen before, and it was just wild to watch. Yeah, you know, I admit the first day or so, I kind of tuned it out. I was just like, oh, here we go again. Donald Trump's getting impeached. But seeing that new video evidence was really chilling, you know, watching lawmakers getting escorted out of the chamber, watching that video of Mitt Romney walking down the hall and Officer Eugene Goodman running toward him and going like, nope, turn around. It, it's Crazy. Yeah, I watched that video too, and it just could have turned into a very dangerous situation for Mitt Romney. It was just a matter of seconds. So that that stuck with me too. You know what else is going on? Attorney General Javier Becerra's confirmation hearing is coming up, but it seems he may have a hard time. The GOP has chosen to really target him, which I find super interesting because it's not based on his personal issues or, you know, something that happened in his personal life, but instead his support for progressive policies like abortion rights and protections for immigrants have put him in their spotlight. Right. I mean, there's a lot of different problems that Republicans are finding with him. You know, he's on the one hand in the pocket of the insurance companies, some people are saying, but on the other hand, he's like this uh, longtime advocate for health care and like calling for Medicare for all. So that will be interesting to watch. Another one is that California Labor Secretary Julie Sue also got a nomination to Biden's administration. And that has raised some eyebrows because she oversees the Employment Development Department, you know, the state's unemployment agency, which, as we have covered extensively on this podcast, is a disaster. So I'm sure she might face some tough questions over that, too. Well, she definitely will, Nicole. Let's bring in another voice into our conversation here. Emily Hoven writes a daily newsletter for CalMatters on all things politics. Hey, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Emily. I scan your newsletter most mornings. It is a bit head spinning to try to keep up with all the different things happening on the vaccine front here in California. Can you just bring us up to speed with what's been happening the last week or so? I know Governor Newsom has been on this like stadium tour of sorts as these new mass vaccination sites uh, start to open up. Yeah, he has. He's been kind of jetting all around the state. He was in San Diego. He was in the Bay Area. I think at the end of the day, though, you know, there's a lot of sites opening up, but the the main question is supply. And that's something that he's just kept saying over and over again. We don't have enough. And the federal government is giving California about a million doses um, every week. As you know, the vaccines are a major sticking point in these school reopening negotiations where many teachers and staff are wanting to receive that vaccine before they go back in the classroom. I think that's kind of one of the main vaccine conundrums at the moment. <laughs> well, in a million vaccines a week sounds huge, right? But in a state like California, where you have to divide that up over this huge geography and all these different counties that probably are asking for 
a million themselves, many of them, um, it's it's going slowly and people are frustrated. All of these issues have not been easy for Governor Newsom and have really raised the stakes for him, right? So, Nicole, you've been following the recall effort. Now, is there anything new on that front this week as Governor Newsom is making all these presentations across the state? Yeah, well, one thing you have seen at these press conferences around the state, we are seeing Democratic officials really circling ranks. The other thing that happened this week is that President Biden came out against the recall effort. It's like debatable whether that will actually change anybody's minds. You know, uh, if someone doesn't like Newsom, then Biden's not going to change their mind on it. But it, it does show how real the possibility of the recall is that the president of the United States was asked about it and, and came out to say, you know, he opposes it. Unexpected, I think. So when that does happen, I think people do pay attention. Yeah. And, and of course, again, Newsom is still very popular among Democratic voters. So... I wanted to ask Emily, though, because I was really interested in a couple of studies that you cited in the newsletter that look at the state's Republican Party. One was about city government seats throughout the state. And and there's not very much good news for the GOP there, right? Yeah. So there's sort of been this pretty significant decline in the number of seats they hold in local governments. Actually, around a decade ago, they held more seats than Democrats did. They had 46 percent. Democrats had 45 percent. And now that's changed where the GOP holds 35 percent and um, Democrats hold 51 percent. And the number of seats held by progressives has also increased. Experts say part of it could be due to this sort of Trump effect where he galvanized a lot of people, um, primarily women, people of color, to run for office and sort of defend themselves, defend their districts against what they saw as, (laughs) frankly, who they saw as a bad person. So that sort of galvanized this whole new wave of people in office. And at the same time, support for Trump remains really strong among California Republicans. 65% of them said, hey, like if he runs again, we're going to we're going to back him. And almost a, almost a quarter of them said we actually identify more with Trump than with the Republican Party. So it'll be really curious to see, you know, if Trump does decide to run again in 2024, if politicians are how they're going to react to Trump and this ongoing impeachment trial. I'm just curious to see what happens in 2022 with like uh, Representative David Valadeo, um, you know, in the Central Valley who voted to impeach Trump. He was just one of the 10 Republicans. He's in a more Democratic leaning district. But then you also have like Representative Mike Garcia, who's a Republican who barely won by like 300 votes in this more like purple district in the L.A. area. Um, It'll be really interesting to see whether that's still a topic in two years and how it it factors into those races. Um, Um, Elizabeth, I am really curious what's been catching your eye this week. (laughs) Well, I have to start with the lawyer cat video. Did you both (laughs) see that? Um, I couldn't stop watching it. I needed that sort of humorous uh, impact on my life this week. I love the expressions on the cat slash lawyer's face, right? When he had to admit he couldn't remove the filter. So I kind of loved it um, and thought it's just emblematic of our lives right now. And I have to try a filter like that next time I have a meeting, maybe with my boss or something, right? Why the hell not? But um, seriously, I'm actually focused on California's children and youth. So I've been looking into how thousands of five-year-olds did not enroll in public kindergarten or their parents did not enroll them in public kindergarten and what that's going to mean for first grade teachers next year. So a lot of gaps between their students who did attend 
who attended virtual, who maybe attended a private instead, and those who didn't have much in by the way of instruction at all. And then how do you teach some of the basics that you learn in kindergarten, which, you know, you think about kindergarten and a lot of people think about nap time or play time. But those are some of the things like one uh, expert I spoke with told me about, you know, you learn how to sit crisscross applesauce, right? You learn how to raise your hand, maybe form a single file line, which you don't really know how to do until someone teaches you how Just to do learn that. how to be so, in school. Exactly. The doing school component. That was a great story, Elizabeth. And I was thinking, too, about kids are in kindergarten learning educational things, too. They're learning the alphabet. They're learning how to spell and read and write. And those are foundational skills. And it really raises the question of if they're not getting that that base at the level that they should be and then are going to kind of have to make up for it in the next year, that's a lot of pressure on teachers, on families, and on the kids themselves as they move through the system. And for me, it makes me wonder, like, is there going to just be sort of a permanent reduction in like what kids learn based on the fact that how they started out may not have been where it should have been? Right. And that's one of the one of the things that has spotlighted is that kindergarten is optional in California and in many, many states it is. And so this idea of maybe it shouldn't be optional and there's actually some legislation in Sacramento now to try to make it mandatory for all five year olds to go to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Emily, speaking about all of this with students, have we had any more signs of a larger school reopening plan? I'm just laughing because, uh, oh my gosh, I spent hours yesterday trying to flesh out what is going on with the schools. Um, It seems that the general framework is more or less what it is right now, which is there will still be significant local discretion about when to reopen, the case levels, and also the vaccines. You know, that the state can make a policy that says, hey, we should prioritize this group of teachers. But at the end of the day, the counties have different numbers of vaccines. They have different availability of who they're giving it to. And so they may or may not be able to meet those guidelines, but it's going to vary pretty significantly. And we're already seeing that variation. I mean, some districts have already reopened and they're like, hey, we don't need to vaccinate the teachers. Others are saying, nope, it's an absolute precondition to reopen. It really just runs the gamut, honestly. Localism um, is determinative, you know. If you exactly. listen to news some press conferences, whatever that means. <laughs> Seems to be the story exactly. of the pandemic, though. Well, Emily, thanks so much for joining us. It was so great to have you on. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much. And as we've touched on, one of the major issues confronting any school reopening plan is that a large number of students in California have simply stopped going to school, not online, not anywhere. CalMatters education reporter Ricardo Cano started looking into how bad the enrollment problem is in this state, and it is, in a word, staggering. The Department of Education projects that this school year there's been a drop of about 155,000 students uh, in K-12 public school enrollment. And that is, you know, a number that's five times higher than what we usually have seen in the last two years. That's a lot of children. Um, Do we know if there are certain parts of the state where enrollment has dropped more than others, maybe? So we're going to get more granular data from the state in March. So we can't really delve into which school districts have been impacted the most or which grade levels. But we certainly know the anecdotal stories and and what's happened among some school districts. So I spoke with experts and really some of the most prevalent reasons for why we're seeing 
this decline are the fact that there's several families in the state who just decided not to enroll their youngest kiddos in kindergarten this year, just with the hopes that uh, next school year was going to be a little bit more normal so their their kids wouldn't be introduced to uh, their public education through distance learning. And another reason that we discussed in a prior episode of this podcast is there's just students in older grades who are dropping out anecdotally at higher rates than we've seen in in recent years. And one of the reasons for that is just there's been a very stark divide in some communities for uh, students who have the adequate internet and computer access to do distance learning and to engage with their teachers. Do we know um, if the state is doing anything on this? We know a lot of school districts, particularly ones that serve lower income families, are rely on student attendance to get their funding. So does the state have a plan to maybe prevent schools from losing out on a lot of money next year because of this big drop? The state did include financial protections in the budget for last school year and this school year, essentially holding budgets flat. Uh, regardless of how many students a school district loses. So there is some cushion there, but you're right about just the the potential financial fallout for school districts. 60% of the districts in the state were experiencing declining enrollment prior to the pandemic. Elk Grove Unified was one of the few districts that was expecting to get more kids this year. But uh, state officials this week said uh, the district has felt part of that financial heat instead of getting those additional 300 students that they were anticipating. They've actually lost 400 kids. So a net loss of 700 students uh, for a district of 63,000 kids, you know, that's pretty substantial in one year. And so just to give you a picture of, of what that could look like for other districts once we do get the the more granular data in March. Well, has the state provided any resources for some of these students who are struggling to connect? I mean, we've been in this pandemic for almost a year. We've been talking about this digital divide for a really long time. Is the state doing anything? So, you know, the state is starting to have discussions about what the aftermath of this school year is going to look like. You know, advocates that I've heard from all share their belief that the ripple effects of this school year are going to take years to really address. You know, when we're talking about students who might have just disengaged completely with their studies. And so, you know, the legislature and the governor are having discussions about addressing learning loss. Uh, We heard the governor's proposal for a $4.6 billion uh, infusion to schools to potentially pay for summer school programs, to pay for services for students who've fallen behind. But also another thing that school advocates told me schools need to really start thinking about is the fact that when next school year comes around, you're going to see potentially a lot of older kindergartners or students entering first grade who might not be ready academically for that. And so thinking about how to engage families who did, you know, take that essential gap year for their kids, how to bring them back into the fold, um, because things will be different next school year. 
Do we know if this enrollment drop is also reflected in private schools or is this just a public school issue? That's a really interesting question. So we analyzed the elementary waiver data last fall and just found that private schools were able to utilize that waiver process to bring back a, a far more significant proportion of their students compared with public schools. That's not to say that private schools ended up with this, you know, windfall of students this fall. You know, I spoke with the executive director for the state private school group that represents private schools, essentially. And, you know, he mentioned to me that there's been a a 6% drop in student enrollment for private schools this year. But still, you know, the private sector is seeing a similar trajectory as the public school system here, and and they're losing students as well. Mm, That's really interesting. Well, Ricardo Cano, uh, who covers education for CalMatters, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your reporting. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, what happens to ethnic immigrant centers when younger generations leave? We'll hear stories from the Vietnamese community here in Sacramento as it celebrates the dawn of a new year. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. And I'm Nicole Nixon. And a very happy Lunar New Year to everyone who's celebrating, including those in the Vietnamese community who are marking the beginning of Tet. This is a huge holiday for Vietnamese communities across California. Sarah Mises Tan, who covers race and equity for Cap Radio, recently spent some time in South Sacramento's Little Saigon district. It's been the center of the city's Tet celebrations for decades. But she told me that demographic shifts and economic hard times are raising questions about the future of that cultural center. Stockton Boulevard, um, I guess Little Saigon, is essentially a four-lane highway um, that's bounded by two crossroads, uh, Fruit Ridge and Florin Road. It's entirely strip malls on this, I don't know, about two mile stretch along Stockton Boulevard. So when you're there, honestly, you can pass right through Little Saigon. And if you weren't really looking at what types of businesses were in the strip malls, you might not even realize. You would just think that you were on your way to downtown Sacramento. But if you do look, all the strip malls are entirely Vietnamese owned. They're entirely Vietnamese businesses. And it's actually kind of like, amazing in a way if you actually stop in a strip mall and you get out you can kind of hear the community there still we've got i visited wonder cafe um which is a kind of coffee lounge um where people often go to play uh chinese checkers or listen to music So, Sarah, how have things changed in Little Saigon since it was first settled, and why have things changed in that direction? I think the community has become more of a business-focused area as a lot of its original community members or their children have gotten older and moved away. A few of the younger generation that's now probably in their 20s or so, um, they mentioned to me that there aren't many resources for younger folks in the area and that the businesses along this corridor aren't really geared towards a younger generation, either in terms of services or possible employment. Here's Jeffrey Fung. He's 28 and has lived with his family and grown up in the neighborhood for most of his life. Well, most of the time, they're, they're more, they want more freedom because South Sacramento is very, very small, and it's not an ideal environment for everybody. 
the type of community that we that we have in South Sacramento hasn't really changed since I was younger. There's a lack of diversity in terms of businesses around here. It's not built to retain people who want to progress and move forward with their lives and do bigger things. It, it isn't built for, for youth, I would, I would say. He also mentioned that there aren't any like youth centers for him to hang out and meet other young people who've grown up in the area. Linda Park is a former resident of the neighborhood. She grew up there in the 80s and 90s when this community was really at its peak in terms of uh, numbers of Vietnamese American immigrants. Um, She says growing up and going to school entirely with other Vietnamese people was an experience she really treasures. And I would say that's one thing that I miss about growing up in South Sacramento. So at midnight, on the first night of that, like you hear firecrackers just everywhere. I was like Christmas lights, right? It it was something that was really special. And now, you know, we don't do that where we live because people would probably call the police. And she's since moved out to Elk Grove to raise her kids, like a lot of other second generation Vietnamese Americans that I spoke with. And she says she doesn't really see the area as home anymore, which is a little bit, she mentioned that she feels a bit of sadness around that. Um, She said it it makes her sad to think that her kids aren't going to have the same connection to their heritage or to that neighborhood that she did growing up. Well, Sarah, I want to go back to the idea that these ethnic enclaves often change over the years, as you've been describing with the second and third generation moving out and beyond the neighborhood. This isn't a new phenomenon. We've seen this in other enclaves, right? Like Chinatowns in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And even the famed Little Italy in New York comes to mind, which you know century ago was a landing place for Italians and is now where people go to have great Italian food and visit shops, but it's not necessarily where a lot of Italians live anymore. Some might call that progress as young people make their way out of the immigrant neighborhoods, but they do remain as business centers and these magnets for people to come back to. What do you think about that concept or what is lost in the research that you did about this when that happens? Yeah, you know, I, in some ways, I think a lot of experts and historians who study these Asian enclaves would totally agree that this is just a lot of these immigrants essentially reaching and achieving the American dream. But I also think that it's interesting A, you kind of hear it in Jeffrey Fung's response. He's someone who still lives there. Um, He feels like the community just doesn't really serve the community that still lives there, which I think is really interesting and one interesting aspect um, of all of this, which is, you know, who is Little Saigon for? Our expert, Andrew Leong, brought up this question of what is the importance of these Asian ethnic enclaves in the United States in general? My answer is really, it's about belonging. White people have their space already created by the government. That's called suburbia. And he mentioned that Italian Americans in general have kind of, they've assimilated into white America. And that's great. That is the American dream. But I think this brings up this question of, Are Asian Americans ever really able to fully assimilate into American culture? And the fact that Asian Americans have really always been thought of as this perpetual foreigner. um, And so even though Asian Americans have moved out and assimilated into 
American culture, I think a lot of them might feel this undercurrent of not fully being accepted. And that's certainly something that we've seen um, in the past year with COVID as well. So I definitely want to visit Little Saigon on my next trip, whenever that's going to be to Sacramento. I'm based in Los Angeles, where, of course, we have numerous ethnic enclaves that have gone through this change or are still in various stages that I love to visit. So thank you, Sarah Mises Tan, for joining us today and talking to us about your story. Of course. Thank you. You know, Nicole, immigrant communities are always so interesting because they really are always evolving, depending on when folks arrived and the growth of the new generation. But I definitely want to visit this one. Yeah, I loved listening to that segment, um, partly because Little Saigon is just a few miles from where I live, and I will never forget the first time I drove down that road. I mean, Sarah's description of the strip malls off this four-lane highway was pretty spot on. But it, it is a good reminder that these areas really are so much more than just a place to get like a delicious bon mi. Although that's not a bad reason to visit them either. Right. Well, food is often the reason so many of our immigrant business districts survive and thrive because we all want to go there. Exactly. Now, before we go, we are all in the middle of kind of COVID-versaries. The first case in California, the first death. Next month marks a year since lockdown, if you can believe it. So we're asking for your answers to this question. What could the state do better to help you manage this ongoing crisis? We'd really love to hear your creative advice for lawmakers, not just give me the vaccine, because that would be all of our answers. Record your answer on your mobile phone and send it to us at yourgoldenstate@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'll use the answers in an upcoming episode. Again, that's yourgoldenstate@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And that's California State of Mind for this week. Next time, we take a closer look at the role of California Attorney General and how it's changing. We'll maybe even engage in some educated guesses as to who might replace Javier Becerra as the state's top law enforcement official. Could it be Bonta? Becton? Steinberg? Schiff? Lou? Kana? McGruff? Like the crime dog? (laughs) (laughs) Your guess is as good as mine, Nicole. That's next time. Until then, have a great week. Bye. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporters of independent thought, whether that's in a podcast, on the radio, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com.